Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 49 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum, here with my co-host Jacob Grandstaff, and we are back after a slight hiatus. Sorry about that, guys. We were not here last week, but we are back in the saddle, getting ready for the second-to-last episode before our 50th episode. Can't believe that milestone is already almost here. This is the second episode of the year 2022, of course, and we've got a lot to talk about. We are going to do a quick review of the... Very first few actions taken by the newly sworn in executives over in right here in the Commonwealth of Virginia down over in Richmond. We are going to be talking about the latest big push, the big thing that the left has taken on now. Apparently their new agenda item, they've pushed a lot of other agenda items like Build Back Better and Biden's other plans completely off to the side in favor of. We're going to tell you what that main topic is, of course, when we get there. But first, we got to start this off. So on Saturday, the 15th, Glenn Youngkin was sworn in as the governor of Virginia, as was Winsome Sears sworn in as the new lieutenant governor and Jason Miyara's sworn in as the new attorney general. Of course, there was a lot of speculation building up to this from his victory in November up to now. Is he going to actually follow through? Is he going to be based and do what he said he was going to do on the campaign trail? Is he going to be more like a Ron DeSantis or is he going to be ultimately more like uh, not necessarily as bad as a Larry Hogan or those never Trumpers, but is he going to be more of just your establishment rhino? He gave a speech. I listened to it. It was, um, it was a decent speech. There were some parts where I kind of cringed a little bit, but I could tell it was the obligatory rhetoric he had to throw in about, uh, he talked about like, you know, America has had its history of injustices, but we are also a great nation. We will teach all of American history, the good and the bad. So moments like that where I'm like, ah, okay, fine. I could have done without that, but I digress. He talked about giving power back to the parents to determine what their kids learn in school. That was good. So on Saturday, his first day in office, right after being sworn in at noon Eastern time, he signed nine executive orders and two executive directives. And I'm just going to read through, skim through briefly this uh, Richmond Times article uh, summarizing them. Executive order number one directs state education officials to end the use of, quote, inherently divisive concepts, including critical race theory. The order says, quote, political indoctrination has no place in our classrooms, end quote. All right. So that that's pretty good. That was arguably the defining social issue of the entire campaign, the issue of the campaign, critical race theory with transgenderism right behind it. Executive order number two rescinds the statewide mask mandate for public school students. And this is crucial because prior to after the election, but prior to being uh, sworn in, there was speculation that Youngkin would kind of backtrack a little bit on this because he had previously hinted that oh, I will rescind statewide mandates, but localities can still implement their own mandates, which people said, what's the point then? Because then they're all just going to do it. Uh, this is crucial, though. The actual executive order says parents may exempt their children from local school systems mask mandates. Basically, it says school districts and localities and local jurisdictions can make recommendations, <laughs> formal recommendations, but parents have a right to disobey them. So it's basically to, renders them toothless. It's just shy, a couple steps shy of a Ron DeSantis outright banning mandates. Uh, in a way, this is actually even more clever than that. And we'll come back to that. Executive order number three fires members of the Virginia parole board and names five new members. So he cleaned that out. <laughs> We'll come back to the cleaning out the executive branch in a bit. Executive order number four authorizes Attorney General Jason Miyares to investigate Loudoun County public schools and look into the double rape case where we talked about this, where the trainee, the, the guy wearing a skirt, raped two different girls at two different schools and they covered it up after the first one, but then they couldn't keep it a secret anymore for the second one and he was found guilty in juvenile court. So that is crucial. Youngkin's directive asserts that Loudoun school boards and school administrators, quote, 
withheld key details and knowingly lied to parents, end quote. So he's sicking his dogs on LCPS, and that's going to be glorious. Uh, skipping through some of the, uh, the, there's a few here that are a little more boring, like, you know, policy-based. We're not going to talk about those. Uh, executive order number six directs the safety and health codes board to convene an emergency meeting to discuss whether there is a continued need for employer COVID-19 standards. That's very good, especially in the wake of the Supreme court ruling, uh, an executive order on human trafficking, uh, executive order number nine takes steps to withdraw Virginia from the regional greenhouse gas gas initiative, which is designed to reduce emissions from power plants. So this is good. Youngkin has called it a tax on electricity rate payers. And then a couple of the executive directives here. Directive number one directs the executive branch entities under Youngkin's authority to cut by 25% regulations not mandated by federal or state law. Uh, This is good. Executive director two. executive directive two rescinds the COVID-19 vaccine mandate for all state employees, which he absolutely has the authority to do. They can't sue. The courts can't do anything to stop that. So that is really, 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 really good. Now, moving on the. Already some of the developments that have us thinking maybe the one person who's more based than Yunkin in his executive branch is Attorney General Jason Miaras. I wrote an article for this at American Gre- uh, on the subject of American Greatness. Miaras, the day before he was sworn in on Friday, fired the entirety of the AG office's civil rights division. 30 employees, including 17 attorneys. Jacob, that, that was fantastic news, right? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. That absolutely had to happen. That's clean out the swamp because we know the civil rights division, civil rights division. We know what that's really about. We don't need it. And watching the left, the left's reaction is what is really telling about this. The left is seething over this. They are so mad. Uh, state Senator Luis Lucas, the state Senate president pro tempore of Virginia, who I scrolled through her Twitter feed trying to find this one particular tweet. Her feed is so cancerous it's everything you would expect it's it's basically the meme of like a woman doing the rapid snap 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 in front of her face that kind of rhetoric but she tweeted on that day friday january 14th quote i've been told incoming ag jason miaras just fired the entire civil rights division in the attorney general's office my bill helped create and expand the authority that this division uses (laughs) she followed up with uh this is hilarious this tweet this whole campaign, we had to listen to Jason Yars whining about local prosecutors choosing not to prosecute certain crimes. Then he gets elected and eliminates an entire division dedicated to enforcing civil rights law. Total hypocrisy, and it needs to be seen. How is that hypocrisy? He's doing exactly what he said he would. Yes, he is right. Soros-funded prosecutors are deliberately avoiding certain prosecutions. We talked about this in a previous episode. Certainly, uh, local authorities are not investigating cases like the Loudoun County Public Schools. So, yeah, firing this division is clearing the way for people who will prosecute these cases. So I don't know I don't know how well, in that small the, the head of hers. Soros prosecutors is they're not just glossing over cases that criminal cases, they're very aggressively prosecuting cases against white people in the name of civil rights. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they're just sitting on their hands and doing nothing. And this is what they're concerned about. Rather than getting activists in who are going to go gung-ho. I don't know if you remember the case in Arlington, but the guy, he was looking after a store and someone broke in and he fired a warning shot at the at the perpetrators and they arrested the guy who fired the warning right. shot. Right, even though he didn't hit anybody. He didn't and, hurt anybody. And this yeah. is the way, of course, is one of the Soros prosecutors in Arlington County. She had been letting cases slide. And just like in the Loudoun County case, the prosecutor prosecuted the dad of the girl who was raped and they were she shocked everyone they're like wait a minute i thought you weren't aggressively prosecuting people why are you going after this guy but it's the fact that these people are politically motivated so by defanging them of their civil rights division then at least if they're not going to prosecute anybody at least they can't they're not going to go after conservatives 
Exactly. But it gets even better. It's so good. There's this website called Blue Virginia, which it's everything you would expect from any website with blue in its name, like Act Blue. And it's just a bunch of loser beta males who are just writing articles, moaning and crying about uh, how every Republican in Virginia is a Nazi, basically. And this is focusing on some of the hires that Glenn Youngkin, that governor, not governor-elect anymore, now Governor Youngkin, has made in his administration. The headline is just great. Glenn Youngkin tries really hard for an even worse pick than Andrew Wheeler. That's right. Far right, like multiple A's, far right Elizabeth Schultz for assistant superintendent of public instruction. So it lists some of the people he's hired. He did hire Andrew Wheeler, the former head of the EPA, the national EPA under Trump, to be secretary of natural resources. Uh, Dr. Marty Macri, who appears on Fox News a couple of times to debunk real COVID misinformation, that is misinformation from the government, uh, will be heading up Youngkin's medical advisory team. And this one might take the cake, they say. Elizabeth Schultz, Assistant Superintendent of Public Instruction at the Virginia Department of Education. And they list a ton of articles that are meant to be hit pieces, right? About this woman who served on the Fairfax County Board uh, School Board. Uh, she was one of the few conservatives on the board. She's very vocal about being against critical race theory, about transgenderism. Uh, some of the headlines here are just fantastic. Again, these are meant to be hit pieces, but they just make me like this woman even more. Uh, <laughs> Fairfax County school board member to speak at anti-LGBT hate group event. <laughs> Far-right Fairfax County school board member outrage at providing feminine hygiene products to elementary school girls. Why, why would that, why is it bad that she's outraged at that? That's a good thing to be outraged at. I don't know if I've ever seen a sitting school board member trash students before. Far-right anti-LGBT Fairfax County school board member Elizabeth Schultz says today's kids are far worse than George H.W. Bush. Pepe the Frog, hate speech disseminated by Fairfax County Public School Board member? Question mark. It's, it's great. I'll provide a link to this in the description below. But they are crying over all these picks that are really, really solid. And he has picked quite a few good people to run to various positions in his executive branch. Another one is uh, Daniel Gade, the most recent Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate in 2020, a uh, veteran and amputee. Very nice. Who will lead the Virginia Department of Veterans Resources. Very, very good. Lots of good hires so far. Because, again, between the election and his inauguration, there were worries that, okay, even if he campaigned on really good stuff, he may end up hiring lots of bad people to surround him. Because we all know, especially after the Trump presidency, personnel can be fatal. That can make or break your entire agenda. And there was rightfully some concern over one person he hired. The Daily Beast wrote an article, again, framing this as, oh, far-right Trumpsters are mad about this, that he hired this guy named Joshua Marin Mora. That's a hyphenated name. A Georgetown University graduate to serve on his comms team, who, as it was pointed out by conservatives online, he has pronouns in his bio. He, him. Uh, he is gay. There are photos of him that he posted on his Instagram with a lot of Yas Queen Slay comments of, in response of him for Pride Month wearing a skirt. This is a guy. An extremely tight white shirt with pride written on it in a rainbow lettering. And with the kind of haircut you would expect from you know flamboyantly gay people. And, and among, among other things, this is worth noting, at Georgetown, he was a member of the Georgetown Latinx Leadership Forum. Latinx in the in the name, not Latino, Latinx. So people were like, oh my goodness, this guy might as well be leftist. How is this guy a Republican? And Youngkin hired him to be on his comms team. So people were a little worried, justifiably so. But all of these other hires that has the left fuming on Twitter is a good sign, I think, that he seems to have made more good hires than bad hires thus far. So by all accounts, I think it is pretty safe to conclude 
Young kid's doing well so far. I think he's not even been in office for a week, but lots of good executive orders, lots of good hires. I think we can very much look forward to his governorship for four years. Again, it's been said in Virginia, you have this weird statute where governors can't run for consecutive terms, a second terms. They have to, so they can only serve one non-consecutive term, then try to run again after another four years. That's what Terry McAuliffe tried to do. So he doesn't have to worry about facing the voters again in 2025. He can go all out. He can go ham and do all the things he said he would do. And so far, it looks like he is going to do just that. Again, he's not quite a complete firebrand, scorched earth, nuke them all like Ron DeSantis, but he could very well be up there. I think he could be right up there in the same league as DeSantis and a few others. And uh, the one major criticism, again, is that so far a lot of these are just executive orders because we did regain – the Republicans regained control of the Virginia House of Delegates, but they did not regain the state Senate. That's not up for another two years, which is still nearly under Democrat control. So legislation may be a bit tough, but it needs to be said, again, personnel is key. And at the end of the day, executive orders are only as useless as the staff you have hired to enforce them. And in this case, again, a lot of these would probably fall to Attorney General Jason Yars, who, as we said, he is doing even more. He is going all out even more than Youngkin has. It's also been said that uh, Yars, as Attorney General, plans to formally challenge in the courts Biden's uh, vaccine mandates. The the ones that were not struck down by the Supreme Court, he's going to challenge them again here in the state of Virginia. So he's already pushing back hard on that. So with a guy like Attorney General Miaris, he could be the real superstar of this of this administration, I think, and he will enforce a lot of these orders. So uh, one more, one last good sign to end this note on. You know it's a good sign when the left is suing you, and sure enough, the left they are already suing Glenn Youngkin. Uh, again, another article I wrote for American Greatness about this: a group of Virg- of obviously very left wing, far left Virginians claiming to be parents of children in public schools. Again, I don't know how parents could unironically support this, but they do. They're out of Chesapeake, Virginia. They have filed a lawsuit against Governor Youngkin and his administration over his executive order on the mask mandate, saying that, uh, oh, this defies CDC guidance. Therefore, this is, is a violation of separation of powers, something, something, something. So they're already suing him. You know, when they resort to lawsuits, you know that that's how they are scared because that's their big ultra secret weapon they love to use. Not so secret weapon they use when they have nothing else. So I think we should look at Youngkin's administration with, very very cautious optimism well that's another thing you can sign all the executive orders you want but at the end of the day you have to be able to litigate this stuff in court to force your executive orders into practice because i know arlington county and fairfax county have both said uh, they've both openly said that they are going to ignore his executive orders on mask mandates they've just simply said we're going to keep our mask mandates in place and basically see you in court and we'll see if you can enforce this so you know having jason miaris there to make sure I, i feel like he would aggressively litigate this stuff but that's another thing with executive orders. You can't just sign an executive order and say, okay, well, I signed the order. You know, I've made my constituents happy. I've made my supporters happy. Most of them don't live in Arlington or Fairfax County. No, you have to pursue those orders and force yep. recalcitrant counties to comply with the orders because that's the thing with like the transgender bathrooms issue. The schools had to comply or they were going to lose state funding. And Mm -hmm. they simply can't support themselves without funding from Richmond. And that's Fairfax and Arlington County, of course, are wealthy counties, but they need that funding from Richmond. And so it it remains to be seen if he's going to put his foot down and say, you have to issue a statement to the parents saying that our mask mandates are no longer in existence. If your kids want to come maskless, they can to school. And uh, so that's going to that's basically going to be decided in court whether or not the government, the governor has the authority to force the school districts to, you know, not wear it, not enforce mandates on masks or other things of that nature. But. Speaking of wielding power, uh, this was an article I came across today that I thought was very um, prescient to our times. 
This was I've discovered this from uh, in, this guy named Ines Lyons. He wrote an article called "No," entitled "No, the Revolution Isn't Over," and he was referencing multiple articles that have come out recently claiming that wokeness has been defeated. That Biden's disapproval numbers show that people are turning against the woke left. Which, just for reference, I know this is a little bit. This is kind of picking you know picking up apart straws, but. The term woke is highly misused by yes. the right. Woke We've talked is, a lot of this a lot off the air, but it's good to finally get some clarification on how, because you've told me multiple times, Jacob, how everyone, the left, mostly on the right, are getting the word woke wrong. Yeah, because the left doesn't use the word woke. That's not a term that leftists use. It's not even a leftist terminology. This is something that the right has used, and they've basically substituted for anything Democrat, anything slightly left to center. Woke, Transgenderism, mask mandates, basically. When, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like you'll, ha- you'll hear people on uh, right-wing talk shows and even Fox News saying, yeah, the, the, the woke left is wanting to enforce everyone to wear masks and stuff like that. It's like, no, that doesn't have anything to do with it. No. Woke is simply the, the black – terminology for awake so like they that's the way they'll say like in black slang they'll say i'm woke instead of right. i'm awake specifically they are awake to quote-unquote systemic racism yes they're awake to uh to systemic racism to white racism against their race again america to the discrimination they face in this country has nothing to do with liberalism has nothing to do with leftist politics has nothing nothing to do with the democratic party in fact leftists won't don't even use that term especially white leftists that doesn't even in, in if a white leftist does that you know, use that term he most likely knows what it means and he means that he's awake to the fact that his people discriminate against black people that's the way he would use that but unfortunately because the right is so disconnected from pop culture they don't keep up with this stuff like they they hear about this terminology from radio talk shows Mm -hmm. they hear about this terminology from fox news so they're getting like third fourth fifth hand information but that's just a little bit of a tangent uh into the article now so ns lyons he's right he writes no the revolution isn't over and he's talking about how there's been a flurry of articles claiming that we've essentially won the war on wokeness that wokeness is uh, running away with its tail between its legs and he gives a few examples scott mcconnell and the american conservative uh, is is wokeness almost over for, uh, frank ferretti and spiked the fight back against wokeness has begun brett stevens in the new york times why wokeness will fail and he goes down the list of uh, recent articles claiming the, uh, even in the wall street journal claiming that wokeness is basically being defeated it's on its way out and he's arguing that this isn't true for a number of reasons i'm not going to go through all these different reasons but the main reason he points out his first point is that what is known as wokeness or this basically to sum it up this ideology the, the world is divided between oppressors and the oppressed and is it is our moral obligation to redistribute power not just wealth but power as well from the historic oppressors to the historically oppressed so in the united states that would be specifically black americans so in other words a massive affirmative action and the argument that he uses in lyons uses in this article is that we know that it's not a retreat because this wokeness is a metaphysical sentiment. It's, in other words, it's not a political ideology. You can change people's politics. You simply cannot change their religion, and this is a religion to people. And so while politically they may be on their heels, politically Biden is going down the tank, Democrats are losing left and right, this ideology is not going anywhere because it's not simply an ideology. It's metaphysical. It is something that they have used to replace the whole in their lives that religion once occupied. And he's, he says, you know, has there been a huge religious revival in America in the past nine months that we haven't heard about? He says, no. These people, these academics and these academic trained uh, woke tards, they haven't changed their outlook on life because this isn't just an emotional it's not a phase they're going through. Like it's not like they're. It's not like going through puberty or going through rebellious. Yes, yeah, rebellion against your parents. Yeah, yeah, it's not a rebellious phrase, a phase in their life. This is their new religion, 
and they are going to try to enforce that religion the same way that religious radicals throughout history have always tried to enforce their religion on the broader population, which is by force. And he referenced an article that was I thought was very good. It's by a mathematician or a statistician to be uh, to be more precise, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He writes uh, – this is an article he wrote back in 2016. The most intolerant wins, the dictatorship of the small minority. And of course, we'll link this in, in the show notes. He makes the point very forcefully that you only need 3 percent of the population to conquer a nation or to conquer a society. He writes, the best example I know that gives insights into the functioning of a complex system is with the following situation. It suffices for a certain type of intransigent minorities to reach a minutely small level, say 3 or 4% of the total population, for the entire population to have to submit to their preferences. And the example he gives is with kosher food. He says, this example of complexity hit me ironically as I was attending the New England Complex Systems Institute summer barbecue. As the hosts were setting up the table and unpacking the drinks, a friend who was observant and only ate kosher dropped by to say hello. I offered him a glass of that typical yellow sugared water with citric acid people sometimes call lemonade, almost (laughs) certain that he would reject it owing to his dietary laws. He did not. He drank the liquid called lemonade, and another kosher person commented, quote, liquids around here are kosher. We looked at us at the cartoon container. There was a fine print, a tiny symbol, a U inside a circle indicating that it was kosher. The symbol would be detected by those who need to know and look for the minuscule print. As to others like myself, I had been spe- uh, speaking prose all these years without knowing, drinking kosher liquids without knowing they were kosher liquids. And the argument he makes is that people who are non-kosher will eat kosher. People who are kosher will not eat non-kosher. So for a company, it makes a lot more economic sense to just make everything kosher because you're going to get both people, you know, both sets of customers. Whereas if you make non-kosher items, the kosher folks will not eat it. Whereas if you make kosher items, everyone will eat it and you'll get the entirety of the market share. And he makes the same point with restaurants with smoking and non-smoking sections. How you had used to have sections with uh, – you had the restaurant divided even as absurd as it was. You had uh, smoking sections on airplanes as if the smoke isn't going to travel to the front <laughs> of the airplane. But he was arguing that it makes a lot more financial sense to just make everything non-smoking. So what about the smokers? What about their rights? Well, they just have to bend the knee to the non-smokers because, hey, it's much easier because the smokers are going to eat at restaurants that don't allow smoking. The non-smokers, most of them, will not eat at restaurants that permit smoking. Same as with airplanes. Smokers don't have a choice. If they want to fly, they have to fly in a non-smoking airplane. Non-smokers simply don't want to fly with smokers. I mean, I know, for instance, I've got a sibling who is allergic to, to secondhand cigarette smoke. Her throat literally swells up. She cannot breathe if she encounters secondhand smoke. Well, obviously, she's not going to eat at any restaurant that has a smoking section. And another example he gives is, let's suppose you have restaurant A that offers one type of food. You have restaurant B that offers another type of food. And you have 3% of the population that insists on killing people who eat at restaurant B. Well, eventually, restaurant B is just going to go out of business because the other 97% of the population does not want to take time out of their life to fight a war over food. So everyone is eventually going to eat the food that restaurant A produces. And this is true in political societies as well. You can have 3 or 4% of the population that refuses, simply refuses to vote on a particular issue. They refuse to support anyone who supports this particular issue. They will not vote. It doesn't matter if they support 99% of your platform. There's one issue they will not budge on. Well, eventually, one of the political parties is going to accommodate that 3 or 4%, and everybody else in that party, they're just going to have to deal with it. And an example that comes to mind is abortion. There is a significant minority of Republicans who will not vote for any politician Even if they agree with every single thing that politician stands for, if that politician is not pro-life, this forces the entire Republican Party 
to bend the knee to pro-lifers. You cannot win the Republican nomination if you are not pro-life and you do not have as part of your goal the overturning of Roe v. Wade. This is why we're this is why the right has succeeded in this regard. Yep. The pro-choicers are on the are on the they're fleeing the, the pro-choicers um they're in retreat. There are in the general scale. I mean, certainly on the right, there are no pro-choicers on the right. Very few, and they're completely marginalized. The right is definitively a pro-life ideology, and yes, through messaging and galvanizing support for this one crucial social issue that tugs at the heartstrings. Yes, the pro-lifers are finally winning the messaging war. The only way that you can gain any traction on the right if you're pro-choice is if you happen to be a hot ditzy blonde who manages to get on Fox News after getting fired by Glenn, Black, Glenn Beck. Yep. Just throwing that out there, not naming any names. <laughs> There's no, I can't think of anybody who matches that description. Just, just saying, hypothetically, if there was such a person then and they was pro-choice, that would be the only type of person who would have any traction as a pro-choicer. Yep. But anyway, this is uh, going back to the to the main point. You only need like three or four percent of the population to be intransigent on any particular issue, and they can force the rest of society to bend to their will. The reality is, it's only about eight or nine percent of Americans who buy in. To the systemic racism myth. Let me let me backtrack. If you eliminate the black population in America who have historic grievances and you just look at the non-black population, you're looking at maybe 8% of Americans who actually agree with them on the racial issue. But that narrative is able to carry the day. Every single major corporation bends the knee to that narrative. Every single you know industry, you can't – you simply cannot get a job in any major Fortune 500 company if you stand against that ideology. If you, don't, if you do oppose it, the best you can hope for is to keep your mouth shut and just go along with it. I mean look at Glenn Youngkin. I mean, for crying out loud, Glenn Youngkin, when he was with the Carlisle Group, as we've mentioned on the show before, he incur- he wrote – he signed a letter with the other two CEOs of the company yep. encouraging people to donate to the SPLC. What were the other two? Uh, the NAACP. NAACP believe, and yeah. uh, one of, uh, some other racialist – Was it radical- Southern Poverty Law Center? Or I, 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 believe, I believe one of them was the Southern Poverty Law Center. One of them was the NAACP, and there was, there was another – there was three groups. They were all the radical. Uh, it was not the ADL. It was all black-related. So it was all it was all basically give to these racial justice. They were all radical yeah, yeah, racialist yeah. groups. But the point is, like, even if you're a conservative in in America today, you have to either shut up and basically you can't even because remember silence is violence. Silence is That's white right, violence. Yeah. So you, you can't, can't just even be anti racist. You have to be like you can't just be not racist. You have to be anti racist. They so, say. So how did we get to that position? Because the overwhelming majority doesn't agree with that. Even younger people who are indoctrinated with this from the time they're in kindergarten in many areas of the country don't agree with this. It's like seventy five percent of Gen Z is vehemently against cancel culture. So how is it that cancel culture manages to reign supreme? Well, it's because you have an intransigent minority. And the rest of the country simply isn't willing to use political violence, not actual violence, but political violence against these people to shut them up, whereas these people are willing to use political violence and in some cases actual violence against the opponents of of cancel culture in order to shut the rest of us up. So what does the majority of the country do? Well, the majority of the country doesn't want to fight this stuff. The majority of the country just wants to live its life, so they give in. Another example of this is accents. The, British, the English accent, which Americans refer to as the British accent, which I'm sure just drives the Scots and the Welsh absolutely crazy because they're like something that – I take offense w- to that, Lottie. So <laughs> like what we call the British accent, that originally sounded more like a modern American accent. If you go back in time – if you were to get into a time machine and go back 400, 500 years, you would find that people in England sounded a lot more like Americans today than they sound like English today. In fact, they, wouldn't, they probably wouldn't sound anything like English today. 
if you walk through the streets of London in 1622, go back 400 years to 1622, you walk through the streets of London and you would think, wait a minute, am I in Charleston, South Carolina or am I in London? Because the accent would be far similar, more similar to what Charleston people in Charleston today sound like than what they do in London today. And the reason why they adopted that accent was because that was the accent of the elite. That was the accent of the royals. That was the accent of the nobles. So everybody wanted to be like the elite, like the nobles. And so they started imitating what the minority was sounding like. And uh, this is the same way in Spain. Uh, from uh, Legend has it that the king of Spain spoke with a lisp. So now everyone in Spain speaks with a lisp. That's part of their act of their Spanish accent. That's the main distinguisher between their accent and Latin American Spanish. So people don't necessarily have to win over the majority of a population to enforce their ideology, to enforce their values and their norms on the rest of society. All you have to do is get three percent, four percent of the population and get that four percent to refuse to change their behavior and demand that everyone else accede to their behavior and, and imitate their values. And the same is true with cancel culture. The same is true with the woke tards. It makes a lot more sense if you run a company to just give in because those protesters outside your store, they're threatening to burn your store down and, uh, you know, kill your children and burn your house down and, uh, and beat up your customers. They're not going away. It's the same thing with the Colorado baker, you know, who just wants to be able to bake his cakes in peace. But gay couples seem to keep going back to him like he's the only baker in town suing him because he won't cook for a bake for a gay wedding because he's Christian. They will not leave him alone. How many over a decade now that they've been suing him over and over again? They're not going to leave him alone until he is completely run out of business and or dead. But, you know, his customers who disagree with that. They don't say anything. They're going to stand there and they're going to keep their mouth shut. And it's the same with this hypothetical business I talked about, this restaurant. you got people who are standing outside protesting, accusing them of whatever, accusing them of racism. Their customers who are annoyed by those protesters, they simply want to go in, buy their meal, and leave. They, it may disgust them that there's people out there screaming and hollering and uh, harassing these people. But at the end of the day, they're not going to do anything. What happened whenever uh, – during Kristallnacht? Nobody did anything. Most Germans, if you read the record, if you read the, uh, the historical record of people who lived during that time, most Germans disagreed with that. Even though they didn't like Jews, they disagreed with that. They felt sorry for their Jewish neighbors who were having their livelihoods destroyed by these hooligans. They felt sorry for the business owners who were having all their windows busted out and all their merchandise destroyed, but they didn't say anything. Because at the end of the day, they're not activists. They're just normal people trying to live their lives. And an example I'm thinking of, I went to the Popeyes and um, on 14th Street in D.C. one time. I'm standing in line, and there's uh, there must have been 30 people there. And these two girls were at the counter and just chewing out this girl who's probably I don't know Guatemalan or whatever she was a, she was an immigrant, and they were just chewing her out for being for getting their order wrong. For a solid five minutes, they're holding up the line, just yelling and screaming and cussing at this girl, you know, telling her, you ought to be glad you've got a job. You're a foreigner. You don't even belong in this country. You have no business being here. You better be glad that you've got this, you know, sorry ass job that doesn't pay anything. Basically treating her like a peasant, just chewing her out. And they walk out and this girl's uh, poor girl's got tears in her eyes. And this woman goes up right after him. She, uh, she didn't say anything throughout the entire thing. She's just standing there, standing there meekly and quietly. She goes up and she quietly says, you didn't deserve that. Don't worry about that. You didn't deserve that. Well, I'm thinking a lot of good that did. I mean, but then again, I didn't say anything either. I was just 
thinking about me. I just wanted to get my food and leave. I didn't care anything about this girl course, yeah, who's because being mistreated. Because, I don't know her. Because, of course, the obvious fear is that if you dare to speak up and you know be the good Samaritan, they're going to immediately turn their rage on you and start screaming at you and may pull out phones and video you and act like you did something racist or something. I think subconsciously that that is kind of what people think, but I, that's not really what was going through my mind. What was going through my mind is they'll eventually get done harassing this girl and they'll leave so i can get my food and i can leave too because i've got places to go and things to do and i think that's kind of what the mentality is for most other people most people the reality is most people will not help people they don't know and it's kind of it kind of speaks to the society we've created where we're completely atomized we don't live in a community anymore used to if your neighbor was being harassed you would stand up for your neighbor nowadays I mean, you don't know who your neighbor is. Your neighbor could be a child molester. You have no idea. They just live next to you. They're not really your neighbor. So this is kind of the society we've created. It allows a vocal minority to rule society because at the end of the day, people just want to go in the restaurant. They want to get their takeout and they want to go home. They don't want to stand up for anybody. And if look, if that store gets burned down, they'll go to another one. That store gets burned down by activists, they'll go to another one. And if every single store is forced to comply and put a Black Lives Matter sign on their window – they don't care. They just want to go in. They want to get their takeout, and they want to leave. And so this allows a, a situation where you have 3%, 4% of the population that can completely dictate the terms of social norms and of social cohesion. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, let's let's take our views. Um, Eric, would you say that our views represent less than 50% of the American population? Less than 50 uh, if it is less than 50, then it's barely below 50, like somewhere in the 40s range, like mid 40s range, probably. That That's very, very optimistic. I would uh, venture to say that our views represent, if you take the totality of our views, everything that we agree on, I would say there's probably about five or six percent of the of the country's population that agree with us on all that stuff. If you take away, you know, maybe 25 percent, it grows to maybe 10 percent. But I think by and large, only about a quarter of Americans are political at all. The other 75 percent just don't sure. care. Yeah, so, obviously the non-political people are a huge problem. But, you know, when it comes down to like if you were to ask them, like if you could get in absolute confidence, like signed in blood, this is not being recorded. This will not be used to dox you. You can be anonymous. You can say whatever you want politically. You know, a lot of people would agree on shutting down the border a lot more americans agree with this oh uh, if you were to ask the vast majority of americans who aren't even aware of the transgenderism stuff what they think about it you would be very surprised to see how many are very passionately against tranny bathrooms and stuff like that how many are against critical race theory if they were aware of it so yeah it's it's a matter of awareness but think about yeah it's a matter of awareness but think about all the steps that that requires first of all you've got to educate them that's if yes. you can get them to, to listen yeah. to you. Then you've got to make sure that you can convince them that they are not being recorded, that this will not be used against them. And after everything that everyone's seen in the past three years, mm-hmm. you know, who's going to – you basically – the only way you can get a political conversation going nowadays is basically, basically you hold a gun to someone's head and say, you are going to have a political conversation with me because we're at the point where no one wants to talk politics, even to people they know, even to their friends and family. That's right. I mean people don't have to worry about having political conversations at the Thanksgiving table anymore because they're – They've just they're so tired of it, but also they don't want to lose the few friends and family they have left. And so nobody's going to say anything. Also, they don't want they understand that family is now being weaponized against other family members by the system. So people don't even trust their own sons and daughters anymore, especially if their sons and daughters have gone off and gotten a liberal arts education. So we're at that situation where 75 percent of the country either is completely ignorant or feigns ignorance. So. My point is our views of you know the people who are actually agree with us and would we be willing to say that they agree with us is maybe 5% of the country. But you don't need any more than 5%. If even 5% of American voters said we will not vote 
for a, a Republican unless he is a nationalist, unless he's with us on the border, unless he's with us on immigration, unless he's with us on the fact that the American nation, the American ethnicity even exists, that it's even a thing, that we're a legitimate country. If you don't – if you got 5 percent of the country that says we will not vote for anybody unless they agree with us on this, the Republican Party will have no choice but to force everybody else in that direction because, again, remember, it's like 75, 80 percent of the country isn't plugged in. They vote and they don't talk about politics. So if you can control the narrative of the 25 percent of people who are plugged in, the other 75 percent is going to have no choice but to go along. Here's the thing. The general election of 2016 – most people were dissatisfied with their choices, but you know what they did? They went and they voted anyway. 2020, most people were dissatisfied with their choices. Most people, if it came down to it, they weren't real satisfied with Trump or Biden, but you know what they did? They went and they voted anyway. They picked one of them. If you want to control democracy, you have to be willing to radicalize an intransigent 3%. If you can get that intransigent 3%, you can eventually control the entire country. Among other things, why Democrats and independents are dissatisfied with Biden, it's not because he's incompetent. It's not because you know the – pull out of Afghanistan was a failure. It's not because of inflation. They don't care about that. It's the really far left elements, you know, millennials and Zoomers who most disapprove of Biden because they think he's not doing enough. They think he's not doing enough on global warming and they think he's not doing enough on systemic racism, the, the phantom that isn't real. And this is what I hinted at in the intro that over the last few weeks, Biden's entire agenda has been completely sidelined in many, many ways. The big Build Back Better bill, the uh, two trillion some, something between two and three trillion stimulus bill he wanted to spend on just a complete overhaul on welfare, basically almost like the new Great Society slash the new 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 Deal. That was killed because uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia has said repeatedly he doesn't support the bill. He just can't agree to most of the provisions and the mass spending the bill would produce. And Kristen Sinema of Arizona said the same thing. So they've basically been forced to move on from that. So next up is what they're really pushing for like crazy, especially we just had Martin Luther King Day, and they're emphasizing it in the context of that. This big push for what they call voting rights, that that already is gaslighting in and of itself, that they – want nothing more than to make what happened in 2020 permanent all across the country forever. And what do I mean by that? Of course, they want to federalize elections. They want uh, they want three weeks of being able to turn in your ballot after election day. They want ballots to be mailed to every single voter, just like in California. They want ballot drop boxes. They want the COVID measures, the quote-unquote COVID lockdown quarantine measures for elections to be permanent because obviously that is a game that heavily favors Democrats over Republicans. We talked about that in our six-part investigative series on the 2020 election and the voter fraud there. And that is what they are pushing for right now. I think several bills that are being considered, I think a bill that did pass the House but has yet to pass in the Senate – um, which is a bill they named after John Lewis. They've been idolizing this guy ever since he died. He, I, I guess, I, this is one thing too, that they go out of their way when they really want a bill to pass, they name a bill after one of their beloved colleagues. Because if it's one thing to say, oh, I voted against HR 1795702, but when they have to come out and say, oh, I voted against the John Lewis bill, like they're like, oh, so you hate John Lewis, you know, something like that. It's very clever messaging on their part. The first time I heard of this guy was when he led a sit-in, like little children, like babies in their diapers, sitting on the floor of the house because uh, Speaker Paul Ryan wouldn't take up a bill to ban all guns in America. Like that was, he was crying about it, like we got to ban guns now. And of course it didn't go anywhere. And Ryan humiliated them. One of the few good things Ryan did as Speaker and this bill would basically federalize elections. It would implement these COVID standards nationwide across all 50 states in an instant, which would be game over for Republicans. It would be game over in the Rust Belt states. It'd be game over in Georgia and Arizona and Nevada. It possibly even Florida and Texas with further immigration demographic shifts. It would be game over. And that's what they're pushing for. 
And in particular, they are trying so hard to get rid of the filibuster. Chuck Schumer keeps saying we've got to abolish the filibuster. Joe Biden saying they want to abolish the filibuster, which, again, allows senators to stall particular legislation and prevent it from ever coming up for a vote unless 60 senators vote to overturn it. So in this case, give credit where credit's due. The party is holding their ranks very firmly on this. All 50 Republican senators are against this bill. So if Ted Cruz decides to filibuster it for 37 hours, then the bill is not going to come up for a vote. And they need just a majority, which in this case is 50 senators plus Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote, to abolish the filibuster. But thankfully, once again, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema have repeatedly said they will not abolish the filibuster. And Sinema in particular has been very blunt and, you know, holding nothing back in telling them to their faces, you guys are idiots if you try to get rid of the filibuster. Do you remember what happened in 2013 when Harry Reid, who passed away recently, then Majority Leader Harry Reid, eliminated the filibuster for executive branch nominees and judicial nominees? And of course, one year later, Republicans took back the Senate and they used that to be able to pass to the nominations of judges and executive branch nominees all throughout Trump's term, and that allowed Trump to confirm, well, well over 200 federal judges, all because of what the Democrats did when they were in power and very short-sighted. They did not have the big picture in mind. Cinema has used that example and explicitly said, I am opposing eliminating the filibuster for your own good, guys, because the second Republicans regain power, they're going to use that against you. But of course, the others won't listen. They just really, really, really want to pass this bill. Well, it shows their mentality about this bill. They genuinely believe that if they can eliminate the filibuster and get this bill passed, that Republicans will never be able to gain a majority. Because this mm-hmm. is kind of the narrative they've been running with since 2012 is that if you look at the demographics of America, the Republican Party relies on white people to get elected. As white people become a smaller and smaller percentage of the country, eventually Republicans will become unelectable. And this is the argument they've been using for the past eight years, which of course isn't true because as Latinos become more and more assimilated, they tend to vote more and more Republican, just like yep. Italians, just like Greeks, just like every immigrant group that's ever come to this country. We saw it in Florida and Texas in the 2020 election with Trump. But they are convinced in their hubris are convinced that if they can eliminate the filibuster and get this voting rights bill passed, this will keep Republicans from ever being able to gain the Senate again. So their argument is basically – and it would surprise me if they've explicitly made this argument to cinema behind closed doors that all you have to do is get rid of the filibuster. We get this bill passed and we'll never have to worry about Republicans using this against us in the future because they will never have – 50 senators with the vice president. They will never have 51 senators. At no point in the future will that ever happen like, if we can put these and these um, provisions in place. Like this is it. We will have our supermajority forever now. Like I remember – it's funny you mentioned since 2012. I think it was, it was around that time. It was either after Obama's first election or his second election when James Carville, you know, the infamous old Bill Clinton advisor who's on Fox every now and then, you know, the crusty old guy who's declared after one of those two elections, he said, you know, Republicans will be in the minority for the next 50 years after Obama got elected slash reelected. And of course, that obviously did not prove to be true courtesy of 2016 so yeah i agree of course demographic change is important and it could very well one day guarantee democratic two-thirds supermajority rule for generations but it's not quite there yet but they are convinced that if they pass this bill even ahead of this midterm this 2022 midterm which is not looking good for them in the house maybe even the senate they're convinced that they will finally get their utopia of 50 60 years of endless democratic rule like in california but the reason the reason why they think like that and the reason why they're not exactly wrong is because voting isn't just about the you know the, the majority of the people showing up and casting their vote for one candidate or the other because if you look at the results of any election nor in a healthy election normally you have about 60 to 70 percent of americans who show up to vote that's in a typical general election this past election was a very unhealthy election because you had i think it was like 75 percent to 80 percent in some states you had more than 85 percent of eligible voters showing up to vote that shows that something is wrong something is very wrong because in america 
it's not like France where they have 80 percent, 85 percent every single election. They've, you know, every election going back in recent history has been that high. In the United States, people are not as plugged into politics and civics as they are in Europe. So if you have 85 percent of Americans showing up to vote, it's, it's obviously showing there's either fraud going on or you've just got a bunch of people who are being pressured or bribed to go to the polls and vote who have no idea what's going on, who have, who have not been following the news, who haven't been following politics. Exactly. You shouldn't be voting if you have no idea what you're voting for. Right. And so what the, what these provisions do is they make it easier. So, for instance, uh, same-day registration. Ballot uh, harvesting. Ballot, you know, ballot yeah. harvesting, which I mean, is illegal in every state except for California. And ball, uh, the ballot drop boxes, too, real quick, a judge in Wisconsin, a federal judge in Wisconsin, just ruled that ballot drop boxes are illegal because we talked about in our investigative special how the Wisconsin Elections Commission kind of forced these unilaterally without approval by the state legislature so that's another victory that again that's one more reason they want to pass this bill but yeah between drop boxes and ballot harvesting what else on this wonderful smorgasbord jacob but if you just look at the same day registration even if you don't have outright bribes you think of the unlimited resources that the left has in this country you've got i mean you just look at uh let's just take blackrock for instance they've got trillions of dollars in funds that they manage you got soros who has sitting on 20 billion dollars you've got um, who is the guy from uh, who got in? Oh, um, the guy who tried to briefly run for president. Um, oh, Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg. Yeah, yeah he's, worth, he's worth like fifty billion dollars. You have the guy who's shorter than the podium. They're not going to have any trouble hiring however many people they need to go door to door to get as many people registered on the day of election if this bill were to pass. So in every single state. You would have people – you would have t- literally tens of thousands of activists going door-to-door asking people, have you registered to vote yet? Have you cast your vote today? Forget hitting the phone banks. Just send out 10,000 people in a community of 50,000 have them knock on every single door in the morning to ask every single person over the age of 18 if they voted and try to to urge them to go to the polls and vote. And even you know you can e- it's very easy to bribe people in that way if that's th- if that's what they're looking to do. So same day registration is one of the reasons that we covered why I believe that Biden won the election because it was you know even if you're looking at okay there wasn't outright fraud this still you should not have same day registration because the point of having registration at all is because if someone is going to go register to vote they obviously are not. Mentally incapacitated, to use a little more politically correct term than the term that came to mind. Uh, they, they obviously have their mental faculties about them if they're smart enough to go and register themselves to vote because it's not just about getting as many people to vote as possible. It's about getting the informed public to the polls to vote. And hey, I want every single informed person to vote on election day. Mm-hmm. I think everyone should vote. If they are, if they have their mental capacities about them, if they're literate, if, if they they've know, studied, if they're well aware of what's real and what's fake, they've yeah. looked at the candidates' platforms. Yes, if they if they know what country they're in, if they know what the name <laughs> of the country and the state that they live in is, then they should. Yes, they should go and vote. But in this situation, there is no mental test. You know, you don't have. You've got people who are just able to go register uh, to vote on the day of. Anybody and everybody can go register to vote. And of course, they want felons to be able to register to vote. And in that situation, you don't have democracy anymore. You basically have a plutocracy you that's running rule. thing and paying a bunch of activists to go out and collect votes. And and so that you know that's not a country that you want to live in. That's not that that is a country in which a uh, well moneyed, well educated elite can continue to rule. And they can continue to buy every election by just paying a bunch of college students to go out and collect votes. And this is the country that they want to create. And this is why they're putting so much emphasis on this voting rights bill. You know, at, before Christmas, when it looked like BBB wasn't going to get passed, the Build Back Better bill, Biden immediately shifted gears. And the reason he shifted gears is because you had activists. You had, the, like I mentioned, the 3%. Whenever you have a country of 3% of people who are activists who will not 
who are intransigent, who will not vote for you if you do not support one particular issue. That's the way it is with the Al Sharptons of the world. You had Al Sharpton and a lot of other black so-called civil rights activists who were pressuring Biden, who are visiting the White House, who are constantly making phone calls, writing letters, contacting um, the White House and demanding that Biden put this at the front of his agenda. Forget yep. Build Back Better. In fact, they're, they're extremely angry at Biden right now. A lot of the Black Lives Matter folks refused to attend his speech in Georgia whenever he went in down Atlanta, to Georgia. That's right. Like Stacey Abrams skipped out on it. Like all of them skipped out because this arguably – yeah, Build Back Better was a broader – that you can tell that's Biden's kind of personal pet issue is to be the new Lyndon Johnson. But this civil – this voting rights bill, quote-unquote, this nationalization, this federalizing of elections, this is the – this is their pet issue. Th- this is the top legislative issue for the Black Lives Matter crowd. Uh, so when the devil went down to Georgia to give his speech that uh, a lot of the BLM activists decided to boycott. He forgot to bring his fiddle. He forgot to bring his fiddle. It would have been a lot more entertaining. Uh, fiddle uh, fiddle is, also, is always more entertaining than spittle. I would but- have loved to see a fiddle showdown between Joe Biden and Corn Pop, man. The reason why he's putting this at the top of his agenda is because he's got – you've got intransigent black voters who will not vote for any Democrat if they do not stand for the new civil rights movement. And, and they keep moving the goalposts. Now outlawing voter ID is the new civil rights movement. So th- these are issues that they are simply intransigent on, and this is why it's so easy for black voters to hold the Democratic Party hostage because the Democratic Party simply – does not have enough nerdy white people to win elections. They need blue-collar voters. And since they don't offer blue-collar voters anything, all they offer, that they're basically a party of elites. They have to play up the race card. So they have no choice but to cater to every single demand that the black elite, the Al Sharptons of the world, demand that they give into. So you got Biden over here trying to be LGB, LGB. You can say you got Biden over here trying to be LBJ 2.0, and he he desperately wants his Build Back Better bill. He's got Mansion. He's finally got you know, Mansion, maybe considering it, mulling it around. And you got Al Sharpton over here yelling in his left ear, "Hey, it was black people that put you in office. You better give us what we want." So he's like, "Okay, hang on, hang on, Joe. Let me go. Let me go talk to Al over here." And so then he's going going down to Georgia and demanding that they pass the voting rights. As if you know, it's as if, if Joe Manchin isn't going to end the filibuster. To pass Build Back Better, which actually there a few, there's a lot of aspects of that that would help people in West Virginia. He's certainly not going to end the filibuster to pass this new voting rights bill. And in fact, he went out yesterday or the day the day before I saw he gave an interview in which he said we already have protections against voter fraud. We already have protections against voter intimidation. This is completely unwarranted and unnecessary. And what's funny, what's hilarious is uh, today there are a bunch of people from the NFL, a bunch of retired NFL players, even Nick Saban, a bunch of because Nick Saban is from West Virginia. A bunch of West Virginians wrote a letter to Joe Manchin urging him to stand up for voting rights and how the, uh, this you know every this is so important for our country to protect the integrity of the vote. And they asked Joe Manchin about it about Nick Saban writing him a letter. He said, "Well, Nick Saban included an addendum to that letter. He wrote, P.S. I also support the filibuster.' He said, y'all didn't report that in the media." Oh. So I can just see I can just see these people coming over because Nick Saban is a Democrat. Everybody is known he's a West Virginia Democrat. So every, I can just see some somebody going over to Nick Saban. You know, maybe a couple of his, of his players. Uh, yo, Coach, uh, we really need to pass this bill, this uh, this voting rights bill. You think maybe you could write a write a letter to uh, to your boy Joe Manchin and talk to him about that. <laughs> Oh, sure. Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll write a letter to him. So he writes the letter. How's that? Oh, yeah, that looks good. So he sends off the letter. And then as the player walks out of the room, writes down, P.S., I support the filibuster. That is such, that's yeah, such a just, Looney Tunes joke. I love it. I oh mean, but the, it's like they were reporting this in the news. Nick Saban writes a letter to Joe Manchin. As if, even if he didn't include the P.S., I support the filibuster. Can you just imagine uh, Joe Manchin coming on TV tomorrow, coming on Fox News? Oh, by the way, I changed my mind. I'm going to vote to end the filibuster because uh, my uh, my friend Nick Saban wrote me a letter in uh, – 
you know, I respect Nick Saban's opinion. He's uh, he's won what is it five national championships. So because he's such a good football coach, I decided to take political advice from uh, from Nick Saban. But it's just clown world. The fact the fact that their whole world revolves around celebrities. If they get a celebrity to pen a letter to a politician, and the politician is supposed to give into their demands, if they get a celebrity to endorse a politician, then they expect the celebrity's fans to then vote for that politician. It really shows their opinion of Joe Manchin and West Virginians in general. They, they think he's stupid. Yeah, they think yeah, he'll be so, swayed by a celebrity, and it's the same. I mean, you see it with Kristen Cinema, for example. Remember, they tried to go after her for not supporting, I guess, mass amnesty by the illegal aliens, admitted illegal aliens following her into bathrooms following her on planes following her through airports and she just tripled down and it's like screw you guys you, you think this uh, th- trying to threaten me and intimidate me is going to make me support you no i'm going to oppose you even more mansion is obviously a bit more civil about it because they're not going after him with all the fire and fury yet but he knows he's in a state that trump won by literally what 20 points mm-hmm. like he no, knows- no no more than that he won it by 60 points Oh, was it that oh, much? It was, yeah, it was, oh my was, god! Yeah, yeah never mind. Huge. I know that when he won it in sixteen against Hillary, um, he he set the new record for the highest percentage margin of victory in the state of West Virginia for any candidate, besting the previous record set by Abraham Lincoln in eighteen sixty four. So yeah, it's it's arguably the reddest state in the country, and Manchin knows this. He's not stupid. But the the thing is, the, this where I was going with this is they view Manchin the same way they view all the Southern segregationists of the nineteen sixties. And the way that the right, the way the Republican Party continues to treat Ronald Reagan and his tax cuts, because every Republican president, they want to pass a new tax cut. It's, it was the same thing under Bush, same thing under Trump. That's the first thing you want to do, because like, it's like they believe, okay, the first thing Ronald Reagan did was, pa- was cut taxes. So if we can repeat all the steps that Reagan did, then we can have a new Reagan presidency and a new successful two-term, pres- uh, two-term Republican. It's the same way with Democrats. They look back on their glory years, which was the hate of the, you know, the 1960s, and they're like, okay, well, let's repeat what happened under LBJ. Let's go through all the motions. You've got a bunch of recalcitrant white politicians from majority white states that are poor. Let's use the same carrot and stick approach toward then that we did through white Democrats back in the 60s to get civil rights legislation passed. And it, rather than address the concerns of today, because if you think about it, if Joe Biden were to address student, the student debt issue, you know, he would be he, he would probably easily win reelection. But he's not rather than address the issues today, they want to continue to relitigate the past and relive the past. And uh, that's just this shows this is an opening for the right to step in and really, you know, blow this to smithereens because people aren't living in the 60s. This is why this bill just doesn't gain any traction. If you go up to the average person on the street and ask them what this voting rights bill is about, what do you think the average response would be? Just go up to the average person on the street in uh, in Kansas and ask them if they know what all the what the talk if they've heard about this voting rights bill and if they know what's in it. I guarantee you, ninety percent of the people haven't thought a second about it. They hear it on the news, but it doesn't register what this is going to do or why they're pushing for this. Because in their minds, and I imagine even the minds of a lot of black people, they're probably thinking, well, "What are they talking about? I voted. I voted every election in my life. My parents have voted every election in their lives. Nobody's ever stopped us from voting. It's never been difficult for us to vote. Why do they keep, keep wanting to pass this voting rights bill?" And especially to you know to the average Joe on the street, it's like, well, what's the big deal? Everybody can vote. Why are they making such a big deal about this one bill? So most people just kind of tune it out. This is not an issue that's pressing on people's minds. People are concerned about inflation. They're concerned about COVID. They're concerned about the the crappy economy that we're living in. Some of them may even be considered about potential war with Russia. The only people who care about this bill, which has, be, has moved to the forefront of the Democratic Party's agenda, is the radical 3%. Which goes back to the original article that we talked about earlier. If you can radicalize three or four percent of the population, you move their priorities to the front of the agenda and the rest of the country just has to go along with it. Because 
people don't care about this issue, but you don't see any demands that the Democratic Party stop talking about this. I haven't seen a single leftist demand that the Democratic Party stop talking about the stupid voting rights bill and get back to things that actual leftists care about because they know that the second they do, the black intellectuals in the party are going to immediately accuse them of racism, and they just don't have time to deal with that. So they just keep their mouth shut. They hope that they can get rid of the filibuster to get this passed so they can move on to priorities that they care about. And this is why if in politics, it, it really is a Machiavellian tactic. But if you can radicalize 3 4% of the population and get them to be intransigent, you can eventually rule the entire nation. You can eventually move your agenda to the front, uh, to the forefront of the nation. This is all about a very small minority coercing a gullible majority into forever maintaining the rule of a minority that if, if the majority knew what that minority's ideology was, they would vote against them in a heartbeat. They're preying on the low information voters. They're preying on those who are not politically involved in the slightest. And that's, again, why they are doing this. Like we said, they believe, probably incorrectly, but nevertheless, they believe this is their key to an endless supermajority, that the complete political hegemony they have always wanted. And that, again, is why I am glad to see. You know, Republicans may have betrayed us on infrastructure, and they'll betray, betray us on Obamacare. They may betray us on a lot of things, but Republicans are holding pretty steady on preventing this bill from passing. And rightfully so, because one thing Republicans all love, even the never-Trumpers like Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney, they love winning. They love winning elections, and they know this bill would prevent them from winning an election ever again. So we shall see where this goes, or where hopefully where this doesn't go. Uh, but you better believe this is going to be their big fight for the remainder of the year. They're going to push everything off to the side until and unless they get this done. So hopefully the the ride or the protesters who like to harass Cinema and Mansion will not get through to them and they will hold steady on not abolishing the filibuster because never before would the phrase game over have more meaning, especially in politics, than the passage of this John Lewis voting rights bill. That is all the time we have left for this episode, guys, of The Right Take. Be sure to tune in next week for episode number 50. As always, follow our website, righttakepodcast.com, for all of our latest content. Righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe for the full list of social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available. And if you are feeling ever so generous and want to help us out here on the show, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.